Now, the question amongst the rabbis of Jesus' day was this. How young do you begin teaching the Bible, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament to kids? One rabbi said, under the age of six, we do not receive a child as a pupil. From six upwards, accept him we do, and stuff him with Torah like an ox. Now, education in the first century Israel wasn't seen as a luxury or even as an option. Education was their key to survival. And the Torah was seen as so central to life that if you lost it, you lost everything. And the first century Jewish historian Josephus said this, I quote him, Above all else, we pride ourselves on the education of our children, end quote. And this education was based on children learning the Torah. So around six years old, many Jewish kids would have gone to school for the first time. School would probably have been at the local synagogue and taught by the local rabbi. And this first level of education was called Bet Sefer, which means house of the book. And it would have lasted until the student was about 10 years of age. And sometimes the rabbis would take honey and place it on the student's fingers and then have them taste the honey, which would remind them that God's words taste like honey on the tongue. And the rabbi wanted the students to associate the words of God with the most delicious, exquisite thing they could possibly imagine. And the students would then begin memorizing the Torah. And by the age of 10, most students would generally know the whole thing by heart. That is, the whole book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All those books memorized. Now remember, the text was central for each Jew living in Jesus' day. And have you noticed in your reading of the Gospels how everybody seems to know the Bible? Jesus quotes a phrase or a verse um, from the Scriptures, and everybody seems to know the text. And this is simply because from a very early age, Jewish people were taking in these words. And these words were memorized, and these words were becoming a part of them. And this memorization was also necessary because if you lived during that time, you didn't have your own copy of the text. The printing press wasn't invented until 1,400 years later. And probably your entire village at the time of Jesus could only afford or only have one copy of the Torah, which would have been kept in the synagogue in a closet called the Torah Ark. And there is a good chance you would only see the scriptures once a week, and that was when they were brought out of the Torah Ark to be read publicly. And the rabbis who taught the Torah were the most respected members of the community. They were the best of the best, the smartest students who knew the text inside out. Not everybody 
could be a rabbi. By about the age of 10, students had begun to sort themselves out. Some would demonstrate natural abilities with the scriptures and therefore distance themselves from the others. And these uh, more able students went on to the next level of education, which was called Bet Talmud, which means house of learning. And that lasted until sometime around the age of 14. Now, students who didn't make the grade to this second level of education would continue learning the family trade. If your family made sandals or wine or were farmers, you'd apprentice yourself with your parents and the extended family as you learned the family trade in anticipating, in anticipation rather, of carrying it on someday and passing it down to the next generation. Meanwhile, the best of the best continued their education in Bet Talmud and they would then try to memorize the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. And by the age of 13 or 14, and I find this incredible kind of uh, topic, the top students had the entire Bible virtually memorized. Genesis right through to Malachi. Yes, 39 books basically memorized. And students in this second step of education would also study the art of questions and the oral tradition surrounding the text. You see, for hundreds of years, brilliant minds in in the Jewish nation have been discussing the words of God, wrestling with what they meant and what it meant to live them out. And this developed into a massive oral tradition. You had a verse but then you had all the things that had been said about that verse from all kinds of different people who had discussed it and wrestled with it, with it, commentated on it, a huge mountain of oral tradition. So, as a student, you would be learning a text, but you would also be learning who had said what in the name of whom about that particular text. Now, when the rabbi would ask a student a question, he would seldom give an answer. Have you noticed how rarely Jesus answers questions, but often how he responds with another question? You see, the rabbis had no interest in having the students simply spit back information just for information's sake. They wanted to know if the student understood it, if he had wrestled with it. Now, this kind of approach is difficult for our modern mind to grasp because we generally think of education as the transmission of information. The better a student is, the better he or she is able to produce the right information at the right time. That's our way. However, in the world of rabbinic education, The focus was on questions which demonstrated that the student not only had understood the information, but then could take the subject a step further. Now, do you remember the story when Jesus' parents found him in the temple area? How old was he then? I guess around about 12, maybe 13. 
And notice what the text says there. They found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Around the age of 14 or 15, at the end of Bet Talmud, only the best of the best of the best were still studying. Most students by now were learning the family business and starting families of their own. However, those remaining would now apply to a well-known rabbi to become one of that rabbi's disciples. We often think of a disciple as a student, but being a disciple was far more than just being a student. The goal of a disciple wasn't just to know what the rabbi knew, but to be just like the rabbi. And this level of education was called Bet Midrash, which meant, which means the house of study. And a student would present himself to a well-known rabbi and say, Rabbi, I want to become one of your disciples. And when a, rab- a student applied to a rabbi to be one of his disciples, he was desiring to take what was known as that rabbi's yoke, that rabbi's teaching, that rabbi's lifestyle upon himself. He wanted to learn to do what the rabbi did, to live as the rabbi did. And so when this student came to a rabbi and said, I want to follow you, the rabbi wanted to know a few things. Can this student do what I do? Can this kid, this student spread my yoke? Can this student be like me? Does this student have what it takes? And the rabbi would then question the student, questions about Torah, questions about tradition, questions about other rabbis, questions about the prophets and the wisdom writers and the oral law, questions about interpretation and legislation, questions about words and phrases and passages. And the rabbi would grill the student kid, because he wanted to know if this student could do what he did, the rabbi. The rabbi did not have time, you see, to train a a student who would ultimately wouldn't be able to do what the rabbi did. And if the rabbi decided the student did not have what it took, if this student was not the best of the best, then he would send the student home. He might say, Something like, you obviously love God, you know the Torah, but you do not have what it takes to be one of my disciples. And then he might add, go home and continue learning the family business. But if the rabbi believed that this student did have what it took, he would say, come, follow me. And the student would probably leave his father and mother, leave his synagogue, leave his village and friends, and devote his life to learning how to do what his rabbi did. He would follow the rabbi everywhere. He would learn to apply the oral and written law to situations. He gave up his whole life to be just like his rabbi. This is the kind of devotion of what it means to be a disciple.
Now, one of the most famous rabbis once said to his disciples, and I quote, cover yourself with the dust of your rabbi's feet. And this idea of being covered in the dust of your rabbi came from something everybody had seen in first century Israel. A rabbi would come to town and right behind him would be his group of students doing their best to keep up with the rabbi as he went around teaching his yoke from one place to another. And by the end of the day of walking in the dirt, directly behind your rabbi, the students would have the dust from his feet all over them. And that was a good thing. So around the age of 30, when a rabbi generally began his public teaching, and training of disciples, we find Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Why are they fishermen? Well, because they aren't disciples of a rabbi. They weren't good enough to be that. They didn't make the cut. But Jesus calls these not good enoughs. And the story continues. At once they left their nets and followed him. Now, I don't know about you, when you read Matthew's account of the calling of these first disciples, it's a bit strange, isn't it? Why do they just drop their nets? Why would they quit their jobs for some rabbi that perhaps they'd never met before. But given the first century context, which I've outlaid before you, it's clear what's going on here, isn't it? Can you imagine what this must have been like to have a rabbi say to you, come, follow me. To have a rabbi say, you can be like me. And this is what Jesus is saying to them. Of course, Hearing that, you would, you would drop your net. The rabbi believes that you can do what he does. He thinks you can be like him. And then Jesus comes upon James and John, who are fishing with their father, Zebedee. They are apprentices, learning the family business, which in this case happens to be fishing. If they are still with their father, then how old are they? 14, 15, 16, 20 at the outside. You see, Jesus took some boys who didn't make it, who didn't make the cut, and through them changed the course of human history. Now, being a disciple was terrifying and exhilarating and demanding. They never knew what the rabbi would do next. And again, in the book of Matthew, there's a a very interesting account where Jesus was talking to his disciples at a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, this is one of those details that is very easy to skip, but it is significant. Caesarea Philippi was the world centre of uh, the pagan religion to the goat god Pan. People came from all over the world to worship this god. And there was a a mountain at Caesarea Philippi, and there was a, a crack in the mountain. And through this crack, people believed that spirits from hell could come and go 
from the earth. And this crack was called the gates of hell. And they built a small temple for Pan there and then a court next to it where people would engage in all kinds of perverted sexual acts with goats during the Pan worship festivals. And imagine this, Jesus is there with his disciples. The disciples of Jesus probably would never have been to this place before. It's 26 miles from Galilee, where Jesus and his disciples are from. What was that walk like with Jesus to Caesarea Philippi? Did Jesus even tell his disciples where they were going and why? Can you imagine them talking amongst themselves about what's going on? And it's at Caesarea Philippi that Jesus makes his comment to Peter that upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, will not overcome it. Now it's difficult to be absolutely dogmatic about what Jesus is saying here. But certainly one interpretation, one possible interpretation is that Jesus essentially is saying that these kinds of people who are involved in this pagan worship, the one with the goats, even they are going to be able to join this Jesus movement. And this Jesus movement will be unstoppable. How would you as a disciple even begin to process a statement like that? Now with this context in mind about what the rabbi does and what he expects his disciples to do, let's look at a very familiar story. The story I have in mind is found in Matthew 14, the story we read about Jesus walking on the water and then Peter attempting to do the same thing. The story goes like this. Jesus' disciples are riding in the boat. Jesus comes walking by on the water and one of the disciples says, if it is you, let me come to you on the water. Now, it certainly is a, a weird, odd, strange story, isn't it? And it gets weirder when you think about it. The disciple Peter jumps out of the boat because he wants to walk on the water like Jesus. Now, what on earth is he thinking here? But it does make sense, doesn't it? When you consider what we've been talking about in this message. If you are a disciple, you have committed your entire life to being like your rabbi. If you see your rabbi walk on water, what do you immediately want to do? You want to walk on water. So this disciple gets out on the water, he starts to sink, so he yells, Jesus, save me. And Jesus says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? What does Peter lose faith in? Is it Jesus? Or is Peter losing faith in himself in this sense that Peter loses faith that he can do what his rabbi is doing? Now I've noticed in my studies of the Gospels over the years there are many places in the accounts of Jesus' life where Jesus gets frustrated with his disciples. Now, is that frustration because they are incapable? No. Is because of how capable they are, actually. Jesus sees what they could be and could do, and when they fall short of that, it frustrates him no end. Jesus gets frustrated because his disciples don't realize 
what they are capable of. So at the end of his time with his disciples, Jesus has some final words for them. He tells them to go to the ends of the earth and make more disciples. And then he leaves. He promises to send his spirit to guide them and to give them power. And Jesus himself leaves the future of the Christian movement in their hands. And he doesn't stick around to make sure they don't screw up, does he? He goes. He trusts they can actually do it. And I want to end with a statement which I'd like you to think through and which I'll explore in some depth in the weeks ahead. And it's this. The rabbi Jesus thinks we can be like him with the help of his spirit. We can be disciples following the rabbi Jesus.